Well, I too watched and um, noticed that there were snowflakes, and um, I do have one statement of rebellion. I'm just not yet ready to give in quite yet to winter, so I have my sandals still on. So um, I hate shoes. Um, Thanks for a nice little introduction and lame costume, you know, Maggie, you could have done a little better type of thing. But um, Sam, I'm, I'm glad you uh, um, nailed that, uh, that answer correctly. So, hey, it's good to be with you. I have a question for you. Who is Jesus to you? If you were to describe your relationship with Jesus, how would you do that? Let me offer a number of ways that someone could relate to Jesus. Uh, maybe Jesus is what we might say, he's a stranger. He's a stranger to you. He's around, but you don't really know him. You don't have anything in common. There's no personal type of relationship. Maybe he's an acquaintance. He's somebody that's like a classmate or a co-worker that you're aware of, but you don't talk with this individual or you don't do anything together. It's really merely a relationship of convenience. It's what I described last week. Maybe Jesus to you is what I would call a non-entity. He just really doesn't exist. And for 16 years of my life, Jesus was a non-factor, a non-entity. This is a tough one. Maybe Jesus to you is an enemy. He's far more against you than he is for you. You look at your life and you say, man, there's been a lot of hard, hurtful, wounded things that have happened to me that don't make sense. They're certainly not fair. And if there's a good God out there, that I don't get. Jesus is not trustworthy. Maybe Jesus is your master. You're, you're around him, but the way you relate to him is following a bunch of do's and don'ts, wanting to please him, um, wanting to obey him, and you view yourself as more of a slave to Jesus uh, because he's the master. Well, we use other words too. We use the word like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, um, Jesus is the master. Even the disciples call Jesus Rabboni, meaning teacher. Now, those are a lot of different ways to relate to Jesus. And some of them aren't wrong or bad. Jesus is Lord and Savior, Master. But I want to submit to you this evening, there's one other relationship that just doesn't make sense. Because when you consider who Jesus is, the perfect God, perfect man, embodied in one human being, as Paul says in Colossians, the creator of the universe, this Jesus, who is holy God. Are you ready? He's our friend. He's our friend. That, that just blows my mind. That the God of the universe, the God who knows me perfectly, if that's true, he knows a whole lot of dark side crap that's inside Fritzdale and occasionally comes out. And this God chooses to call us friends. I want that to soak in tonight. 
He says, I consider you my friend. This is the living God. The one who died on a cross and rose from the dead says, I'm your friend. Do you believe that? Is that how you and Jesus do life together? If he's her friend, he's, he's near you. You have a love for him. You walk life together. It's amazing. Well, it's just not Fritz's idea, this idea that Jesus is my friend and I'm his friend. Oh, my golly. As you now have turned to John 15... I want to demonstrate Jesus' bold words to us. And we're right in the middle of what's called the upper room discourse. This is the last night, Thursday night in the high church. We call it Maundy Thursday. And Jesus is sharing this, this meal, this last supper with his disciples. And we're going to read some passionate, powerful words of our Lord as he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room, and is speaking to us tonight. So follow along if you have your Bibles. I don't care if it's in your phone or hard copy. I'm in John chapter 15, and we are going to start with, let me get there. <laughs> ah, such great words. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is my command, that you love one another. Amazing words. There's three declarations sitting in these passage, this passage we just read. And I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm not going to follow a, a clear order, if you, if you can walk with me there. So I want to begin with the first declaration where Jesus declares a friendship with us. A friendship. So take a look. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Jesus is making this amazing statement that you're now my friends. And you got to wonder what's going on inside the minds of the disciples. They've seen him do miraculous things. They've seen him oppose the, the Pharisees. They've seen his sensitivity toward broken, hurting people. And, and the current view of this idea of a Messiah is they want somebody to come Who's going to be king? Who's going to uh, rule over the Roman Empire and really overturn the Roman Empire and deliver the Jews, Israel, from this harsh environment? At this point, Jesus says, you're no longer my slaves. 
You're my friends. Jesus is dealing with something that is just so counterintuitive. See, in the Old Testament, God wasn't a friend. God was sort of this other entity. In the early days of Israel, he was this cloud that would fill this tent. And and his presence, only this man named Moses could go into. And the people feared God. They wanted to stay away from God. God wasn't safe. God wasn't close. Fast forward to this time, the idea of knowing or following a God in the time when Jesus came was totally foreign in the sense that you could have a relationship where you actually would know this God in a personal, intimate way. And Jesus makes this declaration, you're no longer my slaves, you're now my friends. Well, that is a radical view, this idea that you are now my friends. And I want you to understand here, we are friends with the king, this king Jesus, not like being friends with your BFF or your best buddy. So be real careful when Jesus declares us as friends, and I say to you tonight that we're friends with Jesus. It's not just so much this buddy-buddy, oh, it's really being friends with a king that you're part of this inner court where you have access and you spend time with the king. And the king loves you enough and trusts you enough to even share his secrets with you. But the king still expects you to obey him and to honor him and serve his purposes. You are enough of both a friend as well as a servant to the king. I like that picture. King Jesus, he's my friend, but he's God, I'm not. I don't call the shots. I don't demand what happens in this friendship of the living God. I say, you're, you're, you're my Lord. You can do with me whatever you want in this friendship. Now, Jesus elevates this idea that you're no longer a slave. And his disciples, are, you know, they call him master, Rabboni. And he now says, you're my friends. But look back at verse 14, if you would. You are my friends. What's the next word? If you do what I command you. So the idea here is, Jesus is saying, you're my friends if you love and obey what I say. So what that brings up is this whole idea that there's a tension. There's this tension between that the friendship is both unconditional. It's based upon the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. There's no way I can create that friendship. There's no way I set the the ground rules for that friendship. That's unconditional. That should blow your mind. But then Jesus says, yet there's a a, a condition where if you are my friend, you will do what I have asked you to do. Do you hear the tension there? And I don't want to solve that tension this evening. I will live in that tension. I just know that I want to love Jesus Christ with all of my being. I want to do what 
whatever he wants, whatever pleases him. And yet I enjoy this amazing thing called a friendship. Now, this is an amazing thought that Isaiah last week when he talked about the Holy Spirit. Great, great message. He said that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The moment you cross the line of faith, the moment you walk from darkness into light, the moment you surrender to Jesus, Jesus enters into our life in, in the sense of the fullness of the whole Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's the Spirit that fills us, inside us, and begins transforming our lives from the inside out and building the life of Christ in us day by day until the day we die or the day Jesus comes back. So the Holy Spirit is in us. And Isaiah shared this interesting word in Greek in John 14. It's called paraclete. And it's translated like comforter, counselor, advocate. But there's one other translation of that word that is so powerful. And the word paraclete means one who comes alongside you. An alongsider. If the Holy Spirit is the alongsider that brings the presence and the person of Jesus to our day-to-day, moment-by-moment reality, guess what? That alongsider is your friend. That's amazing. So the Holy Spirit not only lives in us, but also alongside us, and then finally, he lives through us as we are the voice, feet, and hands and, and the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's how Jesus can say, you are now my friends, and you will enjoy this relationship with me because I'm alongside you. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's a, a song um, that I, I sing I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He's my friend. I just want that to sort of soak in that this great God considers you his friend. And as Jesus says, I will reveal to you, in a sense, what's the heart of the Father? What's the plan that the Father had in sending his Son and and creating this movement called the church? And then each of us could be a vital part of that. But there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, I want to share something with you. What's the postures that we could have with Jesus? I want to demonstrate three tonight. Three tonight. I want this chair to represent, this is the chair of Jesus. Call it a throne, call it a a master chair, I don't care. So here's the first posture. If Jesus Christ is Lord, you know what my posture is? Oh, God. oh Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I am not worthy of you, of your love that you would consider me. I bow before you. You are my Lord. You are my master. We also have another word, Savior. Here's how I see the position of Savior. On our knees. Oh, Jesus, you know my needs. You know I'm a broken, 
fallen man. You're my high priest. You're praying for me, my friends in this room right now, Savior. Thank you for saving me from my sins and giving me life. Thank you, Savior. Ah, a relationship of a friend. Remember I said the Holy Spirit is on the long cider. This almost seems a little irreligious, isn't it? If this is Jesus, but he would invite me to pull up a chair and to be quiet, to be humble, to be listening, to be okay with silence because I'm just overwhelmed with his presence. And he might say to me, what would you think about what happened in the YMCA class this morning? You, weren't th- you haven't been there since April, and you had a couple of conversations. Those, those I orchestrated. I know, Lord. I was pretty thrilled. Connie and I were just thrilled. We got an invitation tonight uh, to have dinner at one of their homes tomorrow. Can you imagine this type of relationship? If he calls you his friend, then as his friend, he invites me to even come this close with all the baggage and garbage I bring because of his blood, his dying for my sins, I have access to this chair, to this one who calls me friends. The second declaration. Let's look at This idea of Jesus calling us to partner with him in a lasting and fruitful harvest. A lasting and fruitful harvest. Take a look at verse 16. Pretty amazing. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Oh my. Jesus at this point chose us, we did not first choose him. The idea here is God is always the first mover. God is the initiator. There's a great poem that's titled The Hound of Heaven. If somebody says, you know, I found God, there's maybe truth to that, but the ultimate truth is that God was looking for you, looking for that person who says, I found God, well before they were looking for him. Jesus says, I have chosen you. I have stirred in your heart. I've put in you this dead soul. I have begun to bring back to life, new life. I chose you. And you responded by saying yes to this lifelong love relationship. And then Jesus says that I've chosen you out of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying that it is this idea that you are not to be of the world, but in the world. And you're to be my representatives. You're to be my voice and hands and feet into this world. Jesus calls and empowers us to a harvest that lasts 
and is fruitful. What's the harvest? Simply, the harvest is the harvest of the souls of lost men and women. Since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is calling lost people to himself. And the amazing thing is that he invites us to be partners in that harvest. It's also called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to make disciples among all people who make disciples who make disciples. That's what the harvest is. So Jesus uses these powerful pictures that the harvest is, is ripe, it's white. It's like a wheat field just ready to be harvested. And Jesus is telling his followers, oh, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. So he says, I've called you into this harvest. And he wants that harvest to last and to be fruitful. What's true fruit? Number one, true fruit. When you're about the work of God, that true fruit, it remains. It lasts. Secondly, that fruit has seeds in it that will bear new fruit. So it's reproducing. And that's what's so amazing when you look at the work of God. Any aspect of the church or kingdom work. I just met Catherine today who's back because of COVID from Portugal. Catherine, where are you? Raise your hand. Where are you? Yeah! And she was just telling us that she's partnering with other missionaries in Portugal to plant churches among people who are very far from God. Hard soil, right? Hard soil. My point is, what Catherine's doing in partnering with Jesus in the harvest is that she's planting churches that will plant other churches and make disciples. That's fruit that multiplies. And it's fruit that lasts for eternity. I love that. I love that. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit, his life, his person, and presence, and power to work in the harvest and to be fruitful to be involved with kingdom work, impact and influence that is eternal, will last and bring glory to the king. And guess what? The harvest field is not just Portugal. It's, <laughs> is it North Central College? What's our college here? Okay. It's all the places that you work in and live in. That's the harvest field. And Jesus has called you and said, I want you to be harvesters. And when you do this harvest, this is amazing. Simply said, when we work and the harvest is done in Jesus' name, which means it's not about me. It's not in the name of Highland Community Church or any church. It's done in the name of Jesus. So Jesus gets all the credit. Secondly, it depends on the Holy Spirit. Like we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit is the power of Christ's life in us and through us. And I'm so grateful for that. Paul talks about that there are some people in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about some people plant, some people water the seed, some people harvest, but who causes the growth? God. God, that means the harvest and fruitfulness is not dependent on you. Yes. Some of you are on a guilt trip. Oh, I am, God doesn't use me. I'm, uh, no, that's the wrong question, the wrong perspective. God says, I'm the one that causes growth. I'm the one that brings about fruitfulness. You be this vessel, this instrument to be used to me. And then the last aspect is it's you operate in the harvest with desperate, dependent prayer. Desperate, dependent prayer. Oh, Jesus, we need you. 
Now, did you hear these words? These are powerful words that Jesus says. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Here's a question. Is this a guarantee in absolute? So anything you pray, the Father's going to give. I'm going to say, no, it is not an absolute or formula. This could be a whole nother message on the words of Jesus and the idea of prayer. What I believe is that God is sovereign, and there are times when his will and ways are a mystery. And my idea that I somehow have the inside scoop on praying such that I can just absolutely guarantee, God, you're going to do it. Why? Because it says, in Jesus' name. Not everything that I pray is in Jesus' name. Some of it's in Fritz's name, I'm ashamed to say. I'm ashamed to say. And when we pray and ask things in God's, in the name of Jesus, and the answer is no, is that maybe still the answer that God would give us? Don't equate ideas that every time you pray, the answer has to be necessarily yes. But here's the thing I take from Jesus' words here. Let's be bold in our praying. Let's ask God for far more than this, what we're asking him from that, for, for right now. What's God's heartbeat? The harvest. What's his heart? is for the broken, the oppressed, the marginalized. Whatever is on God's heart, I want to be in concert with that. Oh. One last declaration. It's the mandate to sacrificially love like Jesus. We're to love one another as Jesus loves us. Take a look now. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Do you hear what he's saying here? This is not some soft little milk toast love. This is a love that costs someone their life. I just wonder what the disciples are thinking here when they hear that. Huh? I got to love James. I, I got to love Peter to the point I have to lay down my life for them. Oh, no, no. That's a little beyond my reach. That's the human response. But Jesus is giving a picture here far more than just one human's response to another human's. And that is greater love. The greatest love is when you lay down your life, sacrifice your life for another. And what's Jesus giving us a picture of? His own sacrificial love that within 24 hours, the one who says greater love has no one than saying lay down his life, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And he's lived out, he's demonstrated. You don't need to look any further what the sacrificial love is, that it's Jesus Christ hanging on a cross for you and me lays down their life. That's amazing. Christian love is not so much a feeling, but an act of the will. The proof of our love is in our actions to the point of laying down our lives for Christ and one another. I've never had the chance to die for another person, whether it's been in the work of God or in a military setting. But I've been saying, Lord, Deepen the, deep the love in this man's heart, what it means to love sacrificially. My second point is we're to love sacrificially, whatever it takes. Well, 
Now I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, really? Yeah, why not? All right. You guys help pass that out at people. I need your help. Pass that out. Okay. You got one minute. Go. Pass those out. Everybody has to go. Go. So what am I wanting to do? I want to give some feet to this idea of sacrificial love. You hear it in the church. You hear it out in the world. But what does this idea of laying down your life to love like Jesus look like? Let's take a look. How are we doing? You got 20 seconds left. Where's Milena? I needed you passing this out. Well, yeah, but you're the exercise girl. You could go, hey, here's a paper. How are we doing? So I've entitled this Ways to Love Sacrificially. I'm going to run through this quickly, but I, I wanted to make this a separate and spell this out versus saying it only. Bullet point number one, sacrificial love is being willing to give up our rights and the need to always prove we are right. Hello. I don't know about you. I'm a pretty proud individual. I'm a pretty good individual. I love my, my own rights. Don't, don't tread on, okay? That's human nature. But if we're going to love like Jesus, you have to have the willingness to give up your rights and the need to always prove we're right. I never heard my dad say, I'm sorry. I don't think I ever heard my dad say, I'm wrong. Man, that's been hard to shed. The power and the need to be right. Well, how do you like this next one? This is a new phrase. Connie and I discovered this in the beginning of the summer. We heard an individual say, beware of excessive certainty. Huh. Excessive certainty. I think what excessive certainty is, the idea that I am absolutely certain I'm right here. There's no other argument. There's no other position. I'm certain here. Have you met people like that? Do we live in a world of excessive certainty and narratives all over the place? I've been really wrestling with this. Even in the church, when we wrestle with the certainty of the truth of the gospel. Now, there are certain truths that I, I have no problems to be excessive about that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He was born of a Virgin Mary. But go to my next point. Know the difference between your convictions and your preferences. Huh. Maybe my attitude about how we handle the COVID pandemic is more preference than a conviction. But boy, are we fighting seemingly over what we call our convictions. Maybe my attitude toward race is more of a preference than a, than a conviction. See, a conviction is something that you're rooted in. You say, I'm going to believe this all my heart. A preference is, you know, this is how I see it. This is my view. This is my preference. 
So men and women, we could have a great conversation about what's convictions and what's our preferences. And I challenge you to leave tonight, walk through this week, and just say, Lord, would you show me that? Because some of us are dying on the wrong hill. And then what did I write here? Be willing to yield to your what? Hello? Preferences. Probably not going to give up conviction. But when I know I have a preference and somebody else has a a different preference, okay, we can agree to disagree. It takes us to our next point. Uh, You might not agree with me here. But there are often multiple points of view and perspectives on issues. A friend of mine sent me this picture. Take a look at this. I'll stay in the middle. This is reality. Yeah, I won't. This disagreement does not imply that those who oppose you are all wrong. Do you see what's happening? If you're looking at this object in the middle, right here, from this angle, that's what you're going to see. But if you're looking at this same object from this view, this angle, that's what you see. Because of what? It's a partial correct view. Wow. Love to see that in the common discourse in our our culture right now, let alone in the church. So how do you like the phrase? Disagreement does not imply that those who oppose you are all wrong. Hello. That'll rock your world. And it could help the church. So what did I write there? Agree to disagree. It's hard, especially if you think this is a conviction. I'm going to turn the hill for this. There's no other view. <laughs> Maybe there's more than one view. Mm. Well, this one's going to be interesting. Look at the, my phrase here. There are no right people to hate. Let me read you something. Last week, Connie and I read a powerful comment on the hatred and lack of love and grace in the church in a post by David French, a journalist and lawyer and a Christ follower, when he commented on a recent statement by J.D. Vance, a candidate for the Ohio Senate race who is a prominent Christian intellectual and Christian politician who said this, In the culture wars, I think our people, the people in the church, hate the right people. I'll read it again. In the culture wars, I think our people hate the right people. David French responds with a passionate plea. At a time of rising hatred, a Christian political community should blaze forth with a radiant, countercultural embrace of kindness and grace. Instead, all too many, all too many of us have forgotten a fundamental truth. There are no right people to hate. I would say to us tonight, let's stop the hatred. Let's stop the division. Let's stop making the other person who doesn't agree with us the enemy for the name and fame of Jesus.
couple more. Be willing to surrender your advantage, power, privilege, comfort, and opportunity. Boy, that's popular. For the sake of someone else's betterment and good. You know what? I love this group. I love what I know and wish I knew so much more of what's going on in our life together. And I know that there's sacrifice and there's encouragement and there's levels of accountability that's happening here. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Sacrificial love, is, it's not about me. It's my surrendering my rights, my power, my privilege, my opportunity, everything I wrote there for someone else's betterment and good. Hmm. Before I read this last paragraph, and I wrote this down, where does, the, where does this Christ-like sacrificial love need to live be demonstrated by Christ followers in the church? I just wrote down these things. In our politics and political parties, in our view of race, immigration, sexuality, in nationalism, COVID pandemic practices. Men and women, we are Christ followers. We are the church, imperfect and fallen, just like the world. So let us love in the way of Jesus. And I thought of no better way to end this point than these words that are just so radical, so desperately needed today. The Apostle Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. <laughs> love is not proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, thank you for letting me share from this passage. It's a powerful passage, three declarations. Jesus declares that we're his, his friends. Amazing. He invites us into this harvest partnering with him to see fruit happens that will last. And then he calls us to be men and women who live sacrificially, love sacrificially. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. We're such needy people. We think we've got it all together. And thank you for the way that you live in and through each of these people here and us as a group. But tonight, these declarations, let them just wash over us, welling up in our hearts and our minds this idea that we are your friends, this profound relationship. And you've called us to spend our lives in the harvest for your glory, for fruit that will last. And oh, Jesus, tonight, we want to do it in the way of you. And that's this sacrificial, giving up our lives, our rights type of love. Holy Spirit, breathe through this group tonight and tomorrow and the weeks to come that we would be men and women on such a mission to love like Jesus. Forgive us for the ways we've not loved well. We just confess that and cry out to you. But give us fresh hearts, God, fresh eyes and ears and hands. And we pray this in your name. Amen.